Hello, this is Pastor Ryan Brown, and you are listening to the Aroma of Christ, sermons from the pulpit of the Fostoria Baptist Church. Let's get started. Our scripture reading for this week is Hosea 6. Hosea 6 is actually about a call to return to the Lord because the Lord will revive his people. Israel is being called for to repentance, knowing that on the third day they will be raised again. But as that call is made, the reason why they, they are the reason that they need to repent is highlighted. And indeed it's a strong rebuke. And the reason is that they have focused so much on ritual that they've lost the covenant loyalty. They haven't been faithful to the covenant, even if they continue to provide offerings and go through with the rites and rituals that are present in there. And so we read in Hosea 6, starting in verse 1, Come and let us return unto the Lord, for he hath torn, and he will heal us. He hath smitten, and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us, in the third day he will raise us up, and we shall live in his sight. Then shall we know, if we follow on to know the Lord, his going forth is prepared as the morning, and he shall come unto us as the rain, as the latter and former rain up to the, the earth. O Ephraim, what shall I do unto thee? O Judah, what shall I do unto thee? For your goodness is as a morning cloud, and as the early dew it goeth away. Therefore have I hewed them, cry the prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and thy judgments are as the light that goeth forth. For I desired mercy, and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. But they, like men, have transgressed the covenant. There have they dealt treacherously against me. Gilead is a city of them that work iniquity and is polluted with blood. And as troops of robbers wait for a man, so the company of priests murder in the way by consent, for they commit lewdness. I've seen a horrible thing in the house of Israel. There is the whoredom of Israel of Ephraim. Israel is defiled. Also, O Judah, he hath set in harvest for thee when I return the captivity of my people. At to this point, Matthew has shown Jesus' authority. He's been demonstrating it by how he spoke in Matthews 5 through 7. And now by how he is doing these great works and these miracles. And it climaxed last week with the ability and the authority to forgive sins. And people were amazed and marveled. This seems very new. Not that sins can be forgiven. But that the one who can forgive sins is enfleshed living as a human, having an authority upon earth as a man. So it's that type of newness of forgiveness, the newness of the person forgiving being human, that then comes in and continues to be teased out. Since that is new, some implications that other things would be new as well. Matthew begins to show us that first in Matthew 9, 9. And as Jesus passed forth from thence, 
he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. And he saith unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. Father, please do help us today as we work through this passage, as we understand more of your words and of your wonderful grace. Help us to, to, to receive it gratefully and as well to let that grace then push us to endeavor to obey you in all things. And particularly the passage before us today to obey you in being gracious to those around us. Thank you, Lord. Please help what I say to be true to the word and to make it clear what you have already said in these words. And let there be nothing new. And pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. In his book, Just Mercy, Brian Stevenson tells a story of a man named Walter McMillian. Now, Walter was wrongly convicted. He was sent to death row and was there for years. And he remembers that time as a time of significant torture pounding on the walls whenever someone was being executed, trying to protest against it, occasionally smelling rotten flesh, and ultimately knowing his time may come, while also having the fact that he had plenty of people saying where he was at the time of the murder he was supposed to have committed. He and his entire community were not being believed. But through Brian Stevenson's work, he is released. But he doesn't come out without change. He ends up getting dementia at an early age. Doctors believe it to be trauma-induced. As he's getting the care he needs, he ends up in a nursing home. And as one might expect, he screams a lot. He ends up being a little bit of a nuisance to the nursing home workers. And as Brian visits him, he realizes that the reason why is because he's convinced he's back on death row. Doesn't realize the difference between the nursing home and the row. Brian finds this out, calms him down, gets to leave, and he starts talking to a nurse. And this nurse is talking about how there are some people that are there who don't like the fact that Walter is there. They don't like the fact that he is such a nuisance. And they don't like the fact that he was on death row and is now in a nursing home. Thinking that even if he was wrongfully convicted, the very presence there changed him in fundamental ways. The nurse then says, someone told me that somebody like that is not supposed to be here. But I told them that our jobs to help anyone who needs help. And the nurse is right. The job of a nursing home or any medical profession would be to help those who need the help. 
And it's not always going to be neat. Sometimes that's going to involve a little bit of a mess. And it seems that something about the fact that a healer, something about the fact that someone who comes to help people would involve a little bit of a mess, is something the Pharisees just don't understand. They start questioning why does Jesus interact so with tax collectors, with sinners, with those who seem so messy? And of course the answer is he came to help whoever needs help. He came not to call the righteous but the sinners to repentance. And that is our first scene the company of tax collectors. The first thing that's new in regard to this newness of the enfleshed man to forgive sins. And it starts with what we've already read in verse 9. And as Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. And he saith unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. We've seen similar type of ideas before. Matthew 4, 16 through 18, looks at the call of two pairs of brothers, two fishermen pairs of brothers, to come and follow after him. So starting actually in Matthew 4, 18, and going through 22, Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon, called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So that context of the following and the immediate leaving of everything else behind, in order to be made, not to fish after fish, but to fish after men to announce the king is here. Repent, turn from your sins, turn to him. We don't get that subtext here in this call, but the very location of it tells us a little bit about authority involved in answering the call to be a disciple. It naturally fits well. He has ultimate authority. He has authority to ask this tax collector to follow him and for Matthew then to arise and follow after him. But the main flavor that Matthew pulls upon his particular call is his profession beforehand. He's currently, as he is called by Jesus, sitting at the receipt of custom, sitting at the tax booth, collecting taxes for the Roman enemy, and indeed, if we turn back to Matthew 5, 46 to 47, we hear even from Jesus' lips the type of way in which tax collectors were viewed. Because there we read, For if you love them which love you, what reward have you? Do not even publicans the same. If you salute your brethren only, what do you more or than others do not even publicans so. 
In verse 46, the word translated publicans is rightfully understood and translated as tax collector. The same profession that Matthew is in is listed as a synonymous term for those outside the covenant community. Those on the outer fringes, those who are actually untouchable within the inner group, untouchable by the religious structure of the day. And yet he brings them in as one of his 12. And it doesn't stop there. Verse 10, And it came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. Here Jesus is eating, presumably in Matthew's house, and all of these tax collectors, all these tax collectors and sinners are gathered around him, reclined at table with him, enjoying his fellowship. And so here is the purest of men, surrounded by the religious untouchables, surrounded by those whom the Pharisees have already discounted from ever being part of the messianic kingdom. And indeed, that leads to a question. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? They asked the disciples, and they wonder, and they think, Why does he do this? Why does he eat with that? Perhaps there's even the question of the disciples, does he know how bad they truly are? Does he know that they swear? Does he know that they are drunk on weekends? Does he know that that one's been involved in an adulterous relationship? Or that he steals on a regular basis? Does he even know that that man is a, a murderer? Of course, the Pharisees forget one simple thing. And perhaps we forget one simple thing as well. If Jesus were only to interact with the pure and undefiled, if he only were to invite to his table those who are perfectly righteous, the Pharisees wouldn't be invited. And neither would I, and neither would you. Does he not know that we are gossipy? Does he not know that we get angry at silly things? Does he not know that we are ungrateful, not thanking God or other people for any good we get? Does he not know that we are selfish, looking out for our own interests rather than pleasing him? Does he not know that we are judgmental? And he does know that. He knows what the Pharisee, what the publicans and the tax and the sinners are. He knows what we are. He knows our vileness. And he invites us to the table. D.A. Carson explains the Pharisee's position 
they did not understand the purpose of Jesus' mission. Expecting a Messiah who would crush the sinful and support the righteous, they had little place for one who accepted and transformed the sinner and dismissed the righteous as hypocrites. And so he comes in verses 12 to 13. And he provides the answer. But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye, and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus starts with an illustration. They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. We have many prayer requests on our list. We have many prayer requests that refer to surgeries or doctor's appointments. Michelle's been missing for a while as doctors are trying to figure out what's going on. She has doctor appointment after doctor appointment. There was surgeries that have happened this past week. Sharon's in the nursing home. None of these things are that way just simply because it's fun. But no, we have those doctor's appointments, we have those surgeries, we have that time in a nursing home because it's needed, because something is broken. And so Jesus says he doesn't come to call the whole, those who even identify as whole. Realistically speaking, he's saying you shouldn't be surprised at them talking to the sick, even if it is only sick by your standards. Because those who are whole, if they existed, wouldn't need me. Then at the beginning of verse 13, he quotes from Scripture, It says, but go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. I want mercy more than I want the ritual of sacrifice. More than I want you to offer these burnt offerings of lambs and goats. He doesn't directly want their offerings. He wants their heart. Now, on one level, when we read this, it sounds like he's rebuking the Pharisees for not showing grace and mercy to the tax collectors and sinners. And that might be part of what's going on with the Greek that Matthew is using. But the primary point from Hosea 6 isn't directly about showing mercy to those around us, but being loyal to God. Let's turn back again to Hosea chapter 6. The word mercy is the Hebrew word hesed. If you know one Hebrew word, it probably would be this one. And it refers to to things like undeserved favor, good kindness. It also often refers to covenant faithfulness, loyalty, and continuing to do good in God's sake 
from a God's perspective, it's him continuing to love us, continuing to show us mercy even as we despise him, even as in the case of Hosea, Israel is despising the covenant. But in Hosea 6, it's pretty clear that it means a lot more of that covenantal overtone of faithfulness because of how verses 6 to 7 go together. For I desired mercy, not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. But they, like men, have transgressed the covenant. They have dealt treacherously against me. Mercy, knowledge of God are brought together. And then it's clarified what they have done instead of having mercy and knowledge of God is to transgress, to break the covenant, and even further, to act treacherously. They're neglecting the weightier matters of the law for the sake of rites and ritual. For the sake of these small things they think are pleasing to the Lord. But they're not loving. They're not loving God. They're not loving others. And after this rebuke of the Pharisees, this rebuke of the hypocrites of religion who focus on the external, focus on the rites and rituals, he then turns and says again, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Again, Jesus says it shouldn't be surprising that I'm surrounded by people that you think are untouchable because that's who I came for. I came to call the sinner to repentance, not the righteous to repentance. If there were such a thing as a righteous person, that person would not need to repent. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The call of this man who is able to forgive sins is open to all. In uh, all three synoptic gospels, the healing of the paralytic man with the authority of the Son of Man to forgive sins is followed by this reality of the dining with tax collectors and sinners. To help us understand anyone can come to Christ and receive forgiveness. That he dispenses it freely from his death on the cross to all who would come. So do not persuade yourself that you are too far gone. Or that you need to touch yourself up before you can come to him. No. That he is ready to forgive. That he has said this mercy to the undeserving, this faithfulness to his word, even if we prove unfaithful, he is willing to forgive. So come. Receive his forgiveness. Receive his benefits. And to those of us who have, let us not be the Pharisees. 
denying access to the possibility of the gospel because of how people behave. Even if that's prejudging, as well, that person will never accept, so I don't even need to tell them the gospel. Let us open the grace of God to all and let everyone know the call to forgiveness is for them too. Even if, in our introductory case, the man who was on death row actually did deserve to be there, the call to forgiveness would still be open to him. But from a standpoint of our main idea, this idea of teasing out what the newness of authority upon earth from an enfleshed being to forgive sins. The fact that the Pharisees have some sort of customs that need to be changed doesn't really seem that significant. They aren't anywhere close to accepting Christ, and they don't understand Jesus' mission. But is this so fundamentally new that those who actually do understand Jesus' mission also have customs that they would need to get rid of? And that does become pretty clear in regard to the custom of fasting, which is not fully abolished, but is definitely changed. As disciples of John, the one who announced that Jesus was to come and that it was for repentance to forgiveness of sins, also have a question of why. So verses 14 through 17 begins like this. Then came to him the disciples of John, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast off, but thy disciples fast not? And Jesus has already shown fasting as a bit of a foregone conclusion, as something that should be expected. Matthew 6, 16 to 18 First talking about giving alms in verses 2 to 4, then talking about prayer in verses 5 to 15, then adds it with fasting and talking about when you fast, do not do it so that other people will see. So maybe it's then more surprising that given he accepts it as an assumed reality, that his disciples aren't fasting. The disciples of John, the Pharisees, they are fasting regularly. But Jesus' disciples aren't fasting at all. But Jesus does have an answer. He has an answer in specific for the fasting occasion, and then an answer that goes more general. And the specific answer is verse 15. And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then shall they fast. So Jesus takes an illustration from a wedding. The groomsmen, if you will, the ones who are there to support the bridegroom, are not going to be weeping and mourning while the bridegroom is with them. They then actually do not have reason to mourn or fast. They instead have cause for rejoicing. 
Jesus' point then is to say it's all well and good for disciples of John and the Pharisees to fast in mourning for the fact that they are in exile, that Roman is, Romans are occupying them. But his disciples have reason to rejoice because the bridegroom is with them. Because Jesus is the source of their joy and indeed the source of our joy as well. Whom having not seen, you love and rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. But he does say there is a day coming in which they will mourn. In which Good Friday turns into Black Saturday. And for the disciples, it's one of the most depressing times as the one in whom they hoped, the one who was the source of their joy, has been killed. And they aren't yet ready to believe that he will be raised again. Now in today, we still have reason to expect to fast. There is fasting in the book of Acts. It does seem significantly more infrequent and for different purposes. It doesn't seem like it's just to mourn over where our state is. There's fasting in regards to before making decisions, before sending people out on mission. But Jesus then doesn't dwell upon fasting and what that would look like. He then looks into verses 16 to 17. He provides an answer to this question, generally speaking. Kind of starts really teasing out that this newness of his ability on earth to forgive sins, this Jeremiah 31 type reality of a new covenant coming in where he will remember their sins no more, has more implications for how the old and new come together. Verse 16, no man putteth a piece of new cloth onto an old garment. For that which is put in to fill it up taketh from the garment, and the rent is made worse. Neither do men put new wine into old bottles. Else the bottles break, and the wine runneth out, and the bottles perish. But they put new wine into new bottles, and both are preserved. gives two illustrations about new and old not fitting together. Starts with new cloth and an old garment. Talks about sewing. Putting a patch upon this garment. And I think the idea is perhaps carried out better by how the ESV captures what is meant by new. No one puts an unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. So what's the problem with putting an unshrunk cloth on an old garment? The problem is the unshrunk garment is, the unshrunk cloth is still to be shrunk. And the old garment already has been shrunk. So then the next time you actually go through the process of washing that garment, the old, the new cloth is going to shrink 
such that it's smaller than the hole you were trying to patch and suddenly the whole garment is ruined. Then he goes into another illustration and he talks about wine. Now you don't put new wine into old bottles because if you do so, the bottles break. And both the wine and the bottles are ruined. But you have to get new wine and put it into new bottles so that both the wine and the bottles are preserved together. Can't try to put the new covenant, this forgiveness of sins offered through Jesus Christ and shove it into the structures and rituals of the old covenant. Requires a change requires something new. Didn't come, Jesus didn't come just to tweak. He didn't want to just tweak the old covenant and say, okay, well, we had sacrifice of bulls and goats, but now I'm the sacrifice, so there's that type of situation. And though there are parallels, it's not just a tweak, but an overhaul. Because the old and the new are incompatible with one another. If you try to combine them, both are ruined. One commentator writes, Matthew and his readers would not have been surprised when the early Christian movement, which at first continued to worship in the temple and the synagogues, increasingly developed its own church structures, not only because of hostility from the rabbinic establishment, but also because the two patterns proved to be ultimately incompatible. But maybe you're sitting back and saying, but wait, Pastor, what about Matthew 5, 17 to 18? What about what we've already talked about within the Sermon on the Mount about great continuity? Where Jesus had said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets, I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. How can he be there not to tear apart the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them, and also say that the new and old covenants are incompatible together? A couple weeks ago in Sunday school, I unintentionally started a conversation about how our terminology is confusing. About how ultimately the Old Testament is not synonymous with the Old Testament. So we call the first part of the Bible the Old Testament, and that would then mean the same thing as calling it the Old Covenant. But it isn't the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant doesn't exist within the narrative until Exodus 19. And even within the Pentateuch, Moses seems to understand it to be temporary and wants to push beyond it. So when Jesus says the Law and the Prophets and references to the Tanakh, that is, the Hebrew ordering of Law, Prophets, and Psalms, Law, Prophets, and Writings, he's saying that he comes to fulfill what we call the Old Testament, 
not in bringing about a better old covenant, but by bringing the old covenant to its fulfillment in the new, by establishing the right and proper patterns. Because the old covenant stipulations, not necessarily just the company or the custom of fasting, but now Jesus thinking more generally, the Mosaic Covenant is meant to be an old. And there's still moral provision within it that we should listen to. And that gets a little sloppy and messy, and we must understand differences in opinion on that with great humility. But the old covenant has gone away with, the new is here. And that is cause for we as Christians to rejoice. The Old Covenant stipulations about purity, about how to persuade God, the whole situation with temples and tabernacles, be difficult. It's not the way we have to approach God. Instead, we are the temple, both individually and together. We are the house of God. And we have direct access to God through the Son, so that we can pray anywhere, towards any direction. I think it is very fitting that God orchestrated it out so that we were looking at this text on a Lord's Supper day. That we can really, really finish the sermon not by my closing prayer, but by actively rejoicing in the new covenant inaugurated in Jesus' blood, in the price that was paid to allow us this access to God. The old things are gone. The new things are here. Let us rejoice. Father, I do thank you for this day. There are a lot of questions we didn't quite get to resolve about this text and how it works out. But we do know that we have cause to rejoice that our sins are forgiven through Jesus' blood, through his body broken for us, and that we have reason to rejoice that the new covenant in his blood means that we are able to approach you just like this, from anywhere, at any time, that we don't have to worry about whether our sins are fully forgiven. We don't have to keep up with the rites and rituals, but keep up with love. Loving you, enduring in our faith, and loving others. Help us to respond gratefully to what you have done, and to rejoice as we go on from here. Lord, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Aroma for Christ, sermons from the pulpit of the Pastoria of Baptist Church. Do you remember 2 Corinthians 2, 15-16? For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, the other a fragrance from life to life.
who is sufficient for these things?